Hey friends, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss their life journey and how the grace of God has impacted them along the way. After listening to today's episode, I hope you are encouraged that God can use you right now in the midst of your day-to-day life. Yes, it requires daily surrender and trust, but we must remember His grace is enough. Before sharing about this week's guest, I want to advise listeners that this conversation is not recommended for young ears. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. Today's guest is Rebecca Bender. At age 19, Rebecca was trapped in a life of chaos, coerced into prostitution, abused and controlled by her boyfriend turned pimp and trafficker. How did it all unfold? Rebecca shares the details of her story in her new book, In Pursuit of Love. She joins me today to shed light on human trafficking. We chat about the various forms exploitation and trafficking can take on, the increased risk for those in vulnerable situations, the necessity of trauma-informed care, God's consistent long-term pursuit of her heart, and some red flags in the life of someone being trafficked. Listen to what Rebecca says about her early attempts to escape. You know, people say, six years is a long time, why didn't you just run? And my answer is, you know, I did. That's why I'm standing here today. (laughs) I did run. But, you know, the other thing is, why didn't I run sooner? I had multiple attempted escapes and some of them didn't work. And I started learning what to do better next time and where to hide clothes next time and where to start putting money away for next time. And you just start trying to figure out when can I do this? When can I gather up enough courage, gather my driver's license, my daughter out of school, you know, post 9-11, you cannot buy plane tickets with cash. And so your trafficker doesn't really leave you a debit card. (laughs) And so people forget these things. Rebecca is a survivor leader, an overcomer, a child of the most high God. I hope after hearing her story today, you're encouraged to pay attention to people in your community who may be experiencing exploitation for labor or sex acts. I hope you will take action where you are able to change our culture. Good evening, Rebecca. Thank you so much for sitting down with me this evening for the Grace Enough podcast. Yes, I'm so excited. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Go ahead and take a moment, introduce our listeners to you. Tell us a little bit about what you do and your family. Yeah, well, I'm Rebecca Bender. I am a preacher and an author. My husband and I live in the Pacific Northwest. We have four beautiful daughters. Um, One is off at college and I have what we call three littles in the house, (laughs) five, eight, nine. They're all so different. They're Mm -hmm. all so fun. I love, love, love my life today. I'm so grateful for the life I have today. Lived obviously through a crazy, crazy story we're going to get into, but I truly believe that anything the enemy intended for harm, God wants to turn around for his honor and glory. And And so I feel really privileged to be walking in that latter part of the verse today. Amen to that. I know. I mean, and it is funny when you talk about your kids. I never in a million years, you know, you hear people say, oh, they're all so different. And I'm like, you know, you don't really know that. And then you have kids and you're like, how is it even possible that people who came from the two, the same (laughs) two human beings can be so different? Yeah. Oh my God. It's really fun. It's really fun to kind of figure out what the next, you know, what the next one's going to be like or what they're going to be into. And now I have an adult daughter and her finding career and purpose is 
is also really fun watching them really figure out what they're what they're good at and where they shine. It's it's been cool. Well, and she's a track runner, correct? Well, I mean, I guess yeah. a runner is track. What year is she? Is she a junior? Yeah, she's a junior. She runs. Um, she's a hurdler, so she's a hundred meter hurdler. That's her marquee event. Uh, she also does sprints and relay uh, for UC Berkeley. That is so fun. I bet that, I mean, that is really fun to be able to watch your kids excel at something like that. It's so fun. And we subscribe to Flow Track, which is like the subscription that lets you watch uh, Way Meets if oh, they're nice. you know online. So sometimes all the kids and my husband and I will gather around the computer and watch her run a race that's far away that we can't fly to. And it's, that's so really it's so cool. fun. Well, as we get going today, you do have just an incredible transformation story. I mean, I it's written in your book that is coming out January 28th, um, and I'm going to have you, you know, share a little bit about that. But I just finished reading it, and it really is incredible. Um, not just the story, but the information about sex trafficking that you share. And so as we get going, if you'll share a little bit of your story with us, just to give people a picture of what we're going to be talking about today. Yes. Well, thanks. Thanks for reading the book. I'm so excited. I'm excited for it to come out. It's been a long time in the making. But I grew up in a normal kind of all-American middle-class home, blue-collar family, like many people in America. Mm -hmm. I had a great childhood growing up. I can remember walking out to a garden and picking tomatoes off the off the vine salt using a salt shaker and yes. chomping in little kid I remember um, riding my bike all through kind of our country neighborhood and yeah. um, I just had a good childhood my dad worked at the local lumber mill my mom was a stay-at-home mom and I was not raised in church I had a praying grandma my grandma took me to church and uh, vacation Bible school in the summers but my house itself wasn't wasn't really at all a Christian home. My parents partied on the weekends. Um, they'd have friends over and drink and smoke marijuana. And so I kind of grew up thinking that's just how normal people are. I didn't I didn't realize that kind of lifestyle would really desensitize me to think that partying is just a normal part of life. And yeah. so yeah, so when I grew up, I ended up having boundaries that I didn't realize didn't exist, or a lack of boundaries yeah. rather that just had been mirrored for me in childhood. My dad was an alcoholic and my parents ended up divorcing when I was nine and they fought a lot. And so when I found myself in a really dangerous situation with a boy that I had fallen in love with and I thought was my boyfriend and we went to parties and we, you know, he got ended up being really aggressive with me. I just figured this is normal. I really didn't have any kind of red flags going off. I thought, oh, this is just how adults fight. This is just normal. So it's made me as a mother really sensitive to how desensitized kids can be to their upbringing. Like there's nature and nurture. We all know that. But really nature, it also plays a big role in people's decisions as adults. And I think we forget about that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we really say like it doesn't really matter that much, you know? Yeah. We think, well, we'll learn as we grow up, but we really do what's familiar and the root word of familiar is family. And so sometimes we, we can reenact and, and be desensitized to things that were, we were exposed to as kids. We just think is normal Yeah, and they're not normal, like fighting and seeing your dad throw things against the walls and having, you know, a, my mom had a boyfriend after the divorce that was violent to her. That's not normal. And right. so when my when my quote unquote boyfriend got violent with me, I just thought this is how adults fight. We're in love. Yeah. We're going to well, get married. How old were you at that point? I was probably 19 by then. I'd met my boyfriend at 18. I, I got pregnant at 17. I was 
a good kid in school, got great grades, was a varsity athlete, honor roll student. I even graduated a year early. I had enough credits to graduate my junior year. I got accepted into Oregon State University, had a dorm room assigned. I was on prom court and harvest ball queen. I was a cheerleader and a goalie at soccer. Like I was just a gregarious, really involved in lots of things kid. I was, I would have never been put in an at-risk at risk youth category. And so I got pregnant after high school and decided to keep my baby and unenroll from the university and go to community college locally with my parents and live with my mom and stepdad. And my friends who had gone off to university, they ended up moving into an apartment out of their dorm room and into an apartment. So I moved up there with my daughter thinking, finally, I'm going to get out of this small town and experience life. Then I, by then I turned 18 and um, started, I met a guy that had all the answers to all my problems as a young 18 year old, really single mom, like a teen mom, you know, those there's some real vulnerabilities in that, that I didn't get to unpack a ton in the book. Right. When I got the book contract, we had about 55 to 60,000 words. I turned in 90. <laughs> they were like, oh, we're going to have to cut some stories. So, they were like, no, don't cut the stories. I love them all. What do you, how do you pick? You know, I think there's a lot to say about young girls, especially in 18 to 24, who are raised in a culture where sex sells mm-hmm. and where being your options. I heard a TED talk once that said, right now our culture tells young women that either you're sexy or you're invisible. And that really hit me because I I felt like that as a young girl, especially not raised in church. And I kind of, you know, I was gregarious. I was involved as a party girl. Yeah, sure. Let's go after the football game to the bonfire and drink beer. You know, like Mm -hmm. I was just kind of a small town real involved kid. And, and I had no boundaries. My mom had remarried and she was a newlywed by the time I was 15. So she was off with her new husband traveling a lot. And, and I'm, I'm glad that she had this great relationship, but it left me at 15, really raising myself. Yeah. And so parties were often at my house. And I think culture can really, that had been my upbringing up until getting pregnant. And so then I have all of those same vulnerabilities and same habits, really, you know, same, same party girl lifestyle. But now I have a baby. And I'm 18. And I'm broke. And those are really hard times for young people. And I think there's so many young women across America, who are in those same situations. They're on food stamps, they have a baby, because of pop, you know, they're on food stamps due to poverty. They're single moms, they're trying to figure out what their next steps are. And they still have a longing to love and be loved. Yeah. And that's a real vulnerability. Well, and along came this boy who, like you said, you thought had all the answers to your problems. And so you guys began dating. What was that relationship like? He swept me off to this world that I had never been exposed to. You know, again, raised in a real small town. I mean, the town I lived in until I was in the eighth grade had 3,000 people. I mean, you're talking about a real rural farm town. Yes. And then when my mom got another job and moved to the big city, there was 35,000 people. So (laughs) the big city was 35,000 people for us. Oh, girl, I grew up in such a small town, so I can totally relate. Yeah. I mean, you're out feeding cows in the morning before school. My lamb would get, I'd have to fill a (laughs) bottle for my baby sheep. And, you know, like this is how I was raised and riding four wheelers and shooting guns. I mean, yeah, that's real. Mud. I don't know. You you all probably didn't have mountains. We would mud. That's what we called it when we went out four wheelers. 
willing. Okay, we mud. just call them four I'm willing. Like, Mudden. Okay, that's fun. <laughs> well, I'm from Oregon. We might have different slang, but we have mountains in Oregon, so we'd go four four wheeling. Yes. But he was he lived in Portland, and we had met in Eugene near the U of O campus. He was this um, very ambitious music executive. He had his own record label. He had all these bands he was managing. Supposedly, that was the fraudulent lie as a con artist that he told me. And it wasn't just a lie that he said. We actually went to concerts. We went backstage. He talked to bands as if he was actually their manager. And as a young girl, you don't want to seem like a groupie. You don't want to be. So you're trying to just play cool, like, oh, I'll be over here with my drink whenever you're done, you know. But I, I think if I would have been a little bit more astute, and a little bit more thoughtful around making sure people are who they say they are. Mm. I think I would have probably caught onto some of those conversations, but you know, I'm an eighties kid. I was taught stranger danger. I wasn't taught how to tell when you're dating a con artist or when you're involved in a group of people that are having very cult-like mentalities. Mm. We see this so much right now with young people in school that their groups are starting to like all of them bully one kid. I mean, we've seen that on social. How do six people beat up one kid and no, not one of those kids stop and say something? You know, we've seen that. We wonder, how does that happen? Well, group think is so, so real. And I think we need to start talking to our kids more about being careful of your surroundings, being thoughtful around what people are saying. It's not to say kidnapping doesn't happen. It's not to say that we all shouldn't be constantly aware. But trafficking, according to FBI, less than 5% of traffic victims in America are kidnapped. Less than 5%. The majority of people are trafficked by someone they know and trust or are lured off the internet. So if you really want to keep your kids safe, you need to talk to them about being more alert to the people they're around and teaching them internet safety. Yes. Those are the places to to watch for. Well, and so that's exactly what this guy ended up doing. He's taking you to concerts. We know that someone in a vulnerable situation, which in your case was a teen mom, that money talks as well. And so he was able to buy you things and do things for you. And eventually he talks you into going to Vegas. Yeah, he he seemed so ambitious and he had such this business savvy and he clearly had money. And so I just thought he was this great businessman. And I really wanted a family for myself, for my daughter, you know, family that little nine-year-old me never got to have. I wanted for my little girl. And and so sure, part of my sight may have been clouded by a real desire, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make his deceit and his con okay, just Absolutely because not. I was vulnerable, you know? So he does this reverse psychology on me. And, and by now, we're, I'm already, my boundaries were already very expanded by, that, by this time. When, you know, I was working at a strip club to make ends meet on weekends. I would go to strip clubs with him and other up in Portland as date nights. Like he continued to also push my boundaries. I think one thing my husband now, he asks me, we were watching Law and Order and, you know, we've all seen the episode, I'm sure, with Stabler and Benson. It's, you know, SVU and, the guy's talking to a girl in the mall and the next scene, she's in a mini skirt and fishnets. And my husband says to me, I don't understand how it happens so quickly. I said, well, cause it's law and order and they have 43 minutes. Like that's right. that's right. In real life, it doesn't happen quickly. It's a gradual, gradual expansion. There's no A to Z. It's A to B the next month B to C the next month C to D it's slow. Well, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but someone who is a trafficker, 
is definitely watching for someone who already has those boundaries expanded a little bit. Is that, I mean, would you say that's true? Absolutely true. My trafficker would, by the time I was fully eye deep in trafficking, he would take the weekends to go to strip clubs to look for new girls in strip clubs. Mm. He's like, if, if girls are already taken off their clothes for money, I can turn them out for money, which a turnout is a slang word for trafficking a girl. But mm. that would be the slang. A, a trafficker would say, I could turn a girl out. If she's already that close, Yeah, it's less work for them. Well, and I think so often, and this is me speaking to myself, you know, five years ago, maybe more like 10 years ago, you know, having a certain mindset about someone in a strip club being like, oh, well, they're voluntarily doing that. And all these things they are putting themselves in that situation. But I think you have to break down those barriers. And you can speak to this of oftentimes someone has decided to go into that place for reasons just like what you shared. You need money. And you're in a position where you're like, I'm trying to take care of another person and this is a way I can make money. I don't want to do it, but I'm willing to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think boundary, I think that your childhood and your, your experiences can play a role in determining why you make the choices you make Mm -hmm. all of us, you know, absolutely. And sometimes working in the commercial sex industry, even if it is through dancing, through stripping, it's a way to make quick money for people that don't have a lot of options and don't have a lot of choices Mm -hmm. and feel really trapped and might not be able to wait two weeks to pay the rent or to buy food and you can have cash that same night. And so it can be a real lure for people. I think the other thing that's important to remember though, is even within strip clubs, women are being trafficked. Yes, I mean, a strip club is a great place for traffickers to relocate to a new city. And that's a great place to start your victim's to get clients that are buying lap dances from you and then try to make them your regulars and you move out of the strip club and you then become, then you become being trafficked through those regulars. And that happened to me all the time. So it looks like I'm a dancer, but I'm being trafficked. My traffickers requiring that I attend that one. There's other girls in that room that are also probably being trafficked through the same stable. So they're watching you. They'll be rewarded if they tell on you for breaking rules. So you you're constantly being watched and it's not just by the traffic by the other victims in the home as well. Yeah. Well, and tell everybody what the definition stable, what is a stable? A stable is the home that the trafficker has multiple victims. Sometimes they don't always live in the same actual home. It's like you can imagine someone who has a stable of horses, right? A trafficker has a stable of women. Yeah. And I love that in the book at the end, there is a couple of pages that are just terms, common terms that you would hear a trafficker use or you would hear in the you know commercial sex industry and that was actually very helpful to me so I was glad that you put that in there but go ahead now and share a little bit about what it was like once you were fully in a trafficking situation like what did let's say you know a weekend look like a typical weekend would look like you know, sleeping as late as you can or as late as allowed I should say depends on the trafficker I mean, for me, what it would look like would be you'd get up, you'd clean the house, you'd go to the grocery store, you'd make food for your kids or the other children in the home. If there's other women with other children, if it's a school day, you might, you know, the kids are probably already at school somehow, whether another victim had to wake up early or the trafficker took them or they went and caught a bus. You'd pick your kids up from school. You'd run errands for your trafficker. You'd go launder a lot of his money so that his hands never get dirty. So it's you walking to Western Union on video. It's you showing your ID to send money. 
around the country or to pay his bills, which is what got some of the women in the home that I was in in a lot of trouble, trouble because he refused to put his fingerprints on anything. And then by dinner time, you're making dinner for everybody. At least that was my situation. And by sundown, you're to hit the street. You're getting dressed up. You're putting up ads online on variety of escort service websites, advertising an hour of your time. You're calling on at escort services, and then you're walking the track. You're loitering in casinos. You're to stay out until you, until the sun comes up. That's the rule. That was the rule in our home. And if you broke that rule, you'd be severely beaten. You'd be beaten to the point of hospitalization. I, I ended up one story I didn't get to put in the book. I, I can remember one day I actually collapsed in the Hard Rock Casino. Oh my, um, my vision just started like tunnel vision, and then it just went out, like just went black. I couldn't see anything. I thought I'd gone blind, and I started screaming for help and like walking to the side of the wall. I remember putting my hand on the wall and just like asking for help, but it's so loud in a Las yeah, yeah. Vegas casino. No one's really. Finally, I heard a man say, ma'am, do you need some help? And I said, yes, can you walk me to the bathroom, please? And I went to the bathroom. I started throwing up. I still couldn't see. I ended up calling my trafficker. My sight came to a little while later. I think I think I splashed water on my face from the toilet, which is oh, quite embarrassing to admit. And then I called my trafficker and said, I'm really sick. Something's wrong. And he just was like, Deal with it. you better get my money. You are not to come home. You are to get money. Um, threatened. He would say swing and hangers and hang the phone up on me, which I knew from previous threats meant he would take my daughter and all of our things. And I would come home to nothing but an empty closet and hangers swinging. And so he would just say swing and hangers and hang the phone up on me. Oh my gosh. So it's just, it's living in the constant state of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, the prolonged mental health of living in a, in a long-term state of fear is really quite disturbing. And we see similar cases of PTSD from combat veterans mm-hmm. because every day you don't know if you're going to die You literally don't know if the door you're knocking on or the car you're getting into is a buyer that's going to strangle you to death. If it's the next Green River killer, Um, you don't know. You don't know if they're going to be violent, if they're going to hold you at knife point for hours. And if you come home and it's not enough money, then you'll have all that happen by your trafficker. And so the mental health, I mean, I I try to detail in the book as best as I can. It's hard to write some of this stuff, but. Well, yeah, I I can even tell just by the emotion on your face as you tell it. Yeah. It's, it's hard to describe. It felt like my sanity was slipping away from me. Yeah. Like I started feeling like I was going crazy and I I didn't know how to like pull myself together enough to just like let the dust settle because the dust never settled. And it was like, I just need a minute to think, but the minute never came. And so you start to feel your sanity like slipping away. And I, I started thinking people were following me. I started checking my glove box and my mirrors for cameras. Like I literally became, and I wasn't on drugs. Yeah. Just from the mental health of constant abuse, physical abuse, and the constant state of fear. Yeah. Um, and then started to make sleep. me feel crazy. I mean, I remember in the book you saying like you just got so little sleep. Yeah, lack of sleep, lack of food. Um, with the Hard Rock situation, I ended up actually being taken to the emergency room. I don't, I don't remember if I drove or if an ambulance got me. I can't actually remember, but I remember being in the hospital and my trafficker showing up and not happy that I was there. And my the doctor diagnosed me with dehydration and overexhaustion from no sleep and no water. And my medical report literally says I was able to get my medical report recently. I put in a request for it. And it says, 26-year-old female appears alert and in no distress, 
husband is here to get her. They don't have time to wait for results. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I was just shocked reading that medical health report. Like, alert and in no distress. Wow. Husband is here to get her. Like, I'm not even married. We don't have the same last name. He's 20 years my senior. Wake up. ER, wake up, you know? And I mean, you obviously were in some visible distress. I had gotten down to almost 95 pounds, um, probably 195 pounds due to just stress. I was not on drugs at all. My hair was falling out in clumps from the stress. I'd get in the shower and just clumps and clumps of hair would fall out. I thought, I'm going to die. Like, I'm going to die doing this. I I have to get out. And I, you know, people say six years is a long time. Why didn't you just run? And my answer is, you know, I did. That's why I'm standing here today. Yeah. <laughs> I did run. But, you know, the other thing is, why didn't I run sooner? I had multiple attempted escapes and mm-hmm. some of them didn't work. And I started learning what to do better next time and yes. where to hide clothes next time and where to start putting money away for next time. And you just start trying to figure out when can I do this? When can I gather up enough courage, gather my driver's license, my daughter out of school, you know, post 9-11, you cannot buy plane tickets with cash. And so your Mm. trafficker doesn't really leave you a debit card. (laughs) Right, right. And so people forget these things. They forget that you can't actually just run to an airport with no ID and no debit card or credit card and jump on a flight. It no longer works like that. So what do you do? What do you do if he has your ID? How, how do you get out? How do you, you hitchhike with a baby, right? It's just like, it's so much more so complicated. Many, and I think yes. that so many people, you're either uneducated about it, or it's just easy to think that it's simpler than it is when it's not your reality. Yeah, I had a friend once she described trying to run. I, I love she said she's a survivor, and she's a speaker. And she says, I kept thinking at the next red light, I jump out of the car and run. She said, but the lights never turned red. And we were only a mile away. And that really hit me because we think of the scenes from the movies that we see. But what happens when every light is green? And before you can think of a next plan, you're already there. Then what? Right? What's what's the next idea that the (laughs) that the listener has? It's like, it is it's complicated. It's very complex. It's not like the movies. And you're trying. You're trying to live. You're trying to grasp a moment to just try to figure out a plan. And you have a baby involved or now a child that you have to think of too. And and so it just becomes a lot really quickly, especially when you're living in that kind of trauma. Your brain just, it doesn't work as quickly as you think it does. Right. Well, there's just layers and layers of manipulation that have gone on. And that's something, you know, I wanted to ask you to just tell everyone, what is trauma-informed care and why is it so important in the life of a trafficked human being, that that is how they are treated. Yes, trauma-informed care is really the best practice that you can ensure you have um, if you're working with this population of people. There are many, many therapists and other experts in almost every city across America now that can provide a trauma-informed training for you or your um and, you know, the, the office you work in, the industry you work in. So I would highly encourage people to look into that, to find an expert in their community. Google trauma-informed care in your city's name and something will pop up that you could look into. It's really about also ensuring that um, trauma is this really well understood, yeah. that you understand what trauma is, how the brain works when it's lived in a constant state of, of trauma. It's about thinking through all the various things like 
you know, suicide, depression, triggers, PTSD, um, heightened emotional responses. Uh, it's about decreasing stigmas and making sure that you're seeing people as victims and not criminals, especially with trafficking, because you've been so traumatized by law enforcement as this criminal mastermind prostitute, quote unquote, that they're interrogating you. They're not interviewing you as a potential rape victim. It's a very different dynamic that people look at you with. And so having a trauma-informed lens and a trauma-informed approach uh, is really how best to work with with trafficking victims. Because you had been out at one point, you had left, and you had gone to a facility And you had lived there for, I think, almost a year, and things were going really, really well. But it wasn't a trauma-informed approach. And then eventually when you left, the temptation to go back was a lot of, you know, the things that that lifestyle afforded you. You can explain that better. But what happened with that? Like you did make this one escape and you were there for a year and things were going well, but then it really started to go the opposite direction. Yeah, I was there for actually almost a year and a half, almost 18 months. And I think I went into a drug rehab and it was great. I mean, it delivered me from drug addiction. I mean, God God ultimately delivered me from drug addiction, but he used this facility and the people there. The facility, though, didn't know anything about human trafficking. And so there's certain complexities that exist within victims that have to be addressed. Otherwise, it's, you know, we liken it to a tree. There's these roots, these deep, vulnerable roots of poverty and exploitation and things that all of us have, um, especially trafficked victims. And you start using drugs or money or, or boys or men or whatever it is to kind of fill that hole in your heart. And those, those are like leaves on the tree that grow from the roots in your, you know, in your heart. And so once my drug addiction had been taken care of, it's like that tree was cut off, but the roots were still there. The roots of exploitation, the trauma bonding, the brainwashing, um, the complex compound PTSD, all of those things were still there. And so that tree just eventually grew back and it had different leaves. So it looked different, but, but it never really left. And so making sure that people who might be interacting with with traffic victims are really trained in the specific needs of this population. I've had to refer victims to local shelters, homeless shelters, Mm. local domestic violence shelters, because it's the only open bed. And those places are really hard for traffic victims. Mm. If you think about it, a traffic victim goes from a home where there's a whole bunch of women and one guy that's in charge telling them a whole bunch of rules that they have to comply to or receive punishment. And we take them out of that and we put them in a women's shelter with a whole bunch of other women. And the home director is sharing a whole bunch of rules that they have to comply to or they're going to receive punishment. And so the mere setting itself is causing actual visceral responses in their body. They're feeling heat rise up in their chest. They're feeling immediately irritable for no reason, right? The light's too bright. They're irritable. So it's an actual visceral response from their body. And people are like, why aren't they grateful? They get shelter. And you're like, are you kidding me? This mere setting is a trigger. It's not even the rules. It's the entire setting is actually causing their body to respond physically. And so it's really about trying to make a different setting than one that looked like their trafficker had for them. And that's, I think, while specialized, I'm such a big advocate for specialized services for victims. That's such a good thing, even for me, because, yeah, I mean, I, the general population, me included, just doesn't even think of that, that going into that place actually 
is this visceral response. It's not ingratitude. It's like you said, it's just part of the way the brain has been traumatized causes this response to come out. Yeah, you'll get migraines, you'll get people that are irritable, um, angry, literally they'll feel sick to their stomach, they'll have a panic attack, an anxiety attack, actual physical response to a setting that feels so familiar to a trauma, you know, to their trauma. Some things we recommend for people that work in those systems that aren't necessarily a trafficking facility, but it might be a DV shelter or homeless shelter, um, is to talk about the reason, the why behind the rule before you tell the rule, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of saying you have to be in by nine o'clock, you say, Hey, we want to make sure that everyone in the home is safe and we need to get our door locked and we only have one staff member to do that. And so because of that, we have this rule that everyone just has to be in by nine. And so if you come in with the why before the rule, it lets someone process like they're not trying to control me. They're not trying to tell me what to do. There's a real actual normal reasoning behind having, you know, this specific rule. And if people can get a lot better of doing that, even if it's with just the trafficked person, like pulling them aside and going, Hey, I just wanted to let you know real quick, here's the why behind this rule. Let me know if you have questions like that in itself will decrease, so to speak, the anxiety. Yeah. Well, tell everyone what are some red flags of a trafficker or just, I mean, this man that basically wooed you in. What were some of those red flags now that you can just probably identify from a mile away? Well, we have in the back of the books, a lot of resources. We have that human trafficking lingo sheet, like you shared. We also have a sheet called power of coercion, um, 30 coercive tactics or 40, excuse me, 40 coercive tactics that traffickers use on their victims. And then we also have this red flag resource in the back, are you or someone, you know, dating a trafficker. Mm -hmm. And I would love to just, I guess, give a disclaimer that not all trafficking looks the same. You know, there's, There's 25 different types of exploitation that exist in America alone, whether it's illicit massage parlors, cantinas, um, online ads, street prostitution. uh, There's all different types. And and so familial trafficking, gang trafficking. I mean, there's all different. There's literally 25 types. You could you can type in typology report human trafficking and the report will pop right up. You can read all about the different 25 types. But for my trafficking, I experienced pimp-controlled domestic exploitation. And so that's where a lot of my um, resources are rooted from. And I would say that it's probably a big portion of trafficking. I mean, there's not a ton of studies out there. But so some red flags that happen for me would be um, a trafficker that's five years older or more between him and the victim, makes frequent trips out of town, doesn't have a job that one can actually visit but clearly enough money to cover bills or live even in an excessive means. If someone is living at 29 years old with a very expensive car and very, very high end clothes, but no one actually knows where their job is. There's no, not even an office where you carry a filing cabinet, you know, like nothing. Right. Um, That should be a red flag. And we're not saying that one of these things on their own means that someone's a trafficker. But usually we say, if you can circle three or more on the list at the back of the book, then that should be someone you just look into a little bit further. Just 
do a little digging, ask around, get on the internet, although it has its flaws, you can do a lot of digging these days. And so look around, Google the business they say they have, look at the online registry at the state where they said their business is registered at, like verify, do a little bit of investigating. Um, And one of the things I have little girls now, and one of the things that we do is we talk about the movie Frozen and how Hans pretended to be someone he wasn't in order to fast track a relationship with Anna to get the kingdom. So not everybody who pretends to be your friend is actually who they say they are. And any attempt to fast track a relationship is a huge red flag. And so there's ways that you can talk to kids about this in a safe way without, you know, that's age appropriate. Right. Yeah, that's a really good one because, I mean, that's straight manipulation. Hans was... Hans was bad, bad, bad. (laughs) He was trying to get the kingdom. (laughs) Well, in chapter 16, I do want to read this part from the book. And then just because you wrote in it, the legal definition of sex trafficking, and then how you began to ask yourself working through that definition, did my trafficker do these things to me? And mm-hmm. it was a real eye-opening experience for you because you had always just thought, oh, I'm this prostitute doing all this. Yeah, I thought I was in domestic violence. That's how I identified. I even called domestic violence helplines. I mean, I literally did not even think I was being trafficked. I thought that only happened to kidnapped kids in foreign countries. I didn't yes. think that happened here. I mean, survivors, we grew up in the same community as everyone else, right? We watch the same movies. Like we have the same exact stereotypes and myths that you do. And so when our situation isn't mirroring those myths, we think, well, we must not be being trafficked. We just have, we go into that self-blame, that self-victim blame. Oh, I made a bad decision. Mm -hmm. Oh, I shouldn't have gotten the car. I shouldn't have got on the plane, you know? Yeah. Well, the legal definition of sex trafficking is the recruiting, harboring, transporting, provision, obtaining, patronizing, or soliciting of a person for the purposes of a commercial sex act in which the commercial sex act is induced by force, fraud, or coercion, or in which the person induced to perform such an act has not attained 18 years of age. So share with us how or that time in your life when you began to really walk through that and ask yourself, did my trafficker do X? Did my trafficker do Y? And how your eyes just really became opened. Yeah. Thanks for bringing this up because I think it's so crucial. This is something we do when we train law enforcement. Most victims are not going to have the know-all, the wherewithal to say, you know, you're right, sir. Due to the trauma-informed vulnerabilities in my youth, I see some fraudulent pretenses at point of recruit, right? Like, They don't talk like that. People don't talk like that. And so if you can just get a survivor to tell their story, like, how'd you meet him? How did you guys get to this city? How did you know what going rate was for X, Y, and Z in this sex industry in this town? Because every town has a different rate. Mm -hmm. How'd you know what the rate was? How'd you know what the websites were that were popular for this? How did you learn? You know, like if you just start having them share their story, a, a trained a healthy adult, healthy, I'm going to put in air quotes here, but like (laughs) um, a trained adult should, a trained professional should be able to say, wow, I think I see some force, fraud or coercion at point of recruitment and at point of destination, which is showing harboring, transporting, you know, who paid for the hotel room? Where did you guys live? Who paid for the rent? That's those sort of inquiries Mm. paint this very different picture that you start realizing If someone used fraud at point of recruitment and then coercion at point of destination, 
that's human trafficking in, into a commercial sex act. Right. And we're not just talking about an entire relationship. You know, when we prosecute cases, we're looking at every single cell of that woman throughout a night. So if she was sold seven times, that's seven points of fraud or coercion yeah. or force at point of recruitment, right? And seven yeah. times of force, fraud or coercion at point of destination. So what did he do to tell you to get in the car when he wanted to take you to the Motel 6 to sell you for an hour? What did he say? He said, if I didn't go, he'd beat my kids. Mm. Has he beaten your kids before? Yeah, he did six months in prison for beating my child. Okay, so this isn't just a coercive threat, which is still illegal. This is an actual force. So you got in the car because you were afraid for your children? Yes. Okay, then where did he take you? He took me to a Motel 6. What did he do there? He told me if I didn't go inside and get the money, my kids wouldn't be able to eat or I'd be slapped upside the head. She goes in to the appointment, quote unquote, she comes out, he takes every dollar of hers. So he's profiting and procuring off of someone else's exploitation. This is all human trafficking. Or even if you take out the force, which some people can understand, what if the next day, so he's done all that to her, he's mm -hmm. been forceful, he's been coercive, he's been threatening. What if the next day he brings her roses and he real sweetly touches her hair and says, like any power and control of domestic violence will any of yeah. us have seen. And if you ever, you know, he says, I'm really sorry that happened yesterday. I don't want that to happen again. I really love you. Can you please just do this one more time for me tonight? We really need to get out of this city. And we've ran out of money. We, right? We've ran out of money. We have no gas. We have no food. Everything becomes about this, this like family unit. And they put the responsibility part on the victim. And so then she's like, you know, I really do want it to go back to how it used to be. Part of you still really loves them. It's the same thing we see in domestic violence relationships. And so she gets back in the car and they go back to the Motel 6 and he woos her and he uses fraud. Yes. The, the hope of a dangling carrot, the, the carrot of hope dangling in front yeah. of her face. That really is not true. Right. And so, you know, there's both of these. And so the victim is experiencing nights of fraudulent hopefulness. Hope leads to eternal misery. And then there's nights of extreme force and coercion. And, and so you live in this constant state of confusion of like, I love him, but why does he hurt me? Mm. And once we got out of town, it, it didn't stop though. And so it's even like, he's not saying, hey, we're going to go do this forever. Are you in? Like, that's never what traffickers say. Right. They're like, hey, we're going to do this for like four days and then we're going to get out of town and everything will go back. So you do your four days and then they go, you know what? The, the car, we need to get a new car, the carburetor, the air, whatever. We're going to do it another couple days, you know? And, and so it's just this constant cycle that you're on this hamster wheel. And when it starts to hit you, there's no end to this. Mm. That's when I think you see a lot of victims start trying to run. Yeah. And then things get even more scary for them. That's when you start to see people's first runs is when it starts to hit them. Oh, this actually isn't going to end. Wow, you've been tricking me. Or when it gets really bad, when you've had a violent night, a violent buyer, girls are like, this is not what you told me would happen. I'm out. I don't want to do this. I don't want to die. I have kids. I This is too scary. And that's when the trafficker's like, I'm not losing a product, <laughs> you know, yes. to them a business. I'm going to quote something else, which you say, my transformation didn't happen overnight. It required making daily choices toward God, his word, and his truth. It was hard and scary, and it went against what my earthly, fleshly self constantly craved. Choosing life and life more abundantly required dying to self 
and that took far longer than the counterfeit version of life the old me kept falling for. I mean, God patiently pursued you for years. Mm -hmm. And doesn't he do that? Doesn't he just uh, woo us back time and time again? Share with our listeners a little bit about your faith journey. Yeah. I mean, God is just so good. And so many times that he tapped on my shoulder throughout my time in sin. You know, I, I feel like Psalms 40 just completely wraps up. You know, he took me out of the pit of hell, out of the miry pit, out of the clutches of Satan, put my feet upon a rock and steadied me as I walked along. Praise be to our God. <laughs> Many will turn and see and rejoice. And I'm, I'm going off my head here, so I'm probably getting some of that scripture wrong, but he just really took me literally out of the clutches of Satan, out of the worst pit that I I didn't even know existed in our country, the, the worst amount of, de, of just debauchery and, and horribleness and steadied me as I walked along. And, I, you know, the Lord showed me a, a while back and I, I share this often. It's like when my little girls all started walking in their toddler years, um, they'd take a couple steps wobbly and then they'd fall down. And those of us that obviously love our kids, we cheer them on. We get excited. We start clapping. We're like, yes, we're, we're celebrating their progress. And we take out cameras. We try to capture it on video and camera. And we want to share it with our other people in their lives. We want to share their progress. And so the Lord showed me that when he steadied me along, when I would slip and fall, he was not, we would never say as earthly parents, oh, you stupid one-year-old, why can't you walk sooner? We don't do that. We get excited and we celebrate. And the Lord showed me that's what he did with me. Mm. Every time I would fall down, every time I'd respond rudely, anytime my anger would get the best of me or I'd lie to someone, the Lord would say, I'm so proud of you for recognizing your progress. Like a year ago, you would have even been convicted over that. <laughs> like, <Wow>. Yeah. <laughs> he gets out his camera. He captures the moment and he's cheering us on. He's not punishing us or mad at us. He's so proud of the progress you're making as he's studying you as you walk along. Mm. And that's just what it's been like for me uh, still, right? I mean, I still fall short. Oh, yes. I, I was in the bank the other day. This lady deposited my check into the wrong account. Didn't even catch it. I drove off. I noticed, hey, I'm this is a big check. It was like a grant, a big check for a nonprofit. I went back and said, hey, you deposited this in the wrong in the wrong thing. She just kind of flippantly was like, oh, well, mistakes happen. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> Whoa, what? <laughs> this is a large check. You gave my receipt with my account number to some other car before or after me. Like, this is a, this is a big concern. I don't want you to just so flippantly brush it off. And, wow. and she, you know, we I was a little bit terse with her. And she looks down and goes, so this is in Rebecca Bender Ministries account? <laughs> Dolores, just give me the receipt. Yeah, that's right. You're like, well, but wait a minute. You don't get to just treat me crummy because it's a ministry. But I don't know. I was just reading First Peter 2 today about submission. And I was like, oh, I got to work through some of that business. <laughs> Submit right? even under unjust suffering. I'm like, hmm. Eh. Yeah, how much suffering? That's right. What exactly does that mean? Because... Jesus was also telling the Pharisees to cut that stuff out. So, <laughs> Yeah, when do I get to be Jesus turning the tables over? That's right. That's right. So what are you doing nowadays? Because you educate FBI, you've worked with Homeland Security, um, you have a podcast out, and you're, you know, working in ministry. Talk to us a little bit about what Rebecca's life looks like now. Yeah, you know, today, my biggest dream, I love preaching. I love being able to share my story to help 
help FBI. I do. I love being salt and light to the world. But there's something about the word of God that, you know, I went back and got my master's seminary at Bethel St. Paul in Christian thought with a concentration in biblical studies. I I just love the word of God. I love Mm -hmm. preaching. I love writing Bible studies. And so my heart in this next season is to really be more a part of the church, more a part of women's events and any Sunday that'll take me, you know, but I I don't judge. I am no... So I just really love the word and that's what, what my next season I know is going to, is going to entail and God has already started to do some things. So I'm excited. That's awesome. Well, and the book that's coming out is called In Pursuit of Love, and you guys can pre-order it now. And I would certainly, you know, encourage you to do that. And so we, um, Rebecca, end our show. Since we've been chatting for quite a while, I'm just going to ask you the question about grandkids. If you had the opportunity to give your great grandkids some wisdom, what's something that you would like to share with them? Oh, wow. That is a really good question. One little other plug I'll give right now with our, we have a pre, we're doing pre-orders. Like you said, you can pre-order the book. We have an incredible bonus for people that pre-order the book. It's called Find Your Lane. It's a free e-course. It's videos, downloads, and a fun interactive quiz that helps people um, identify their place in the human trafficking movement. So Find Your Lane Human trafficking is such a big, ambiguous term that people can feel overwhelmed. It breaks it down into nine easy-to-understand bite-sized chunks. You take a little That's personality awesome. quiz, and it points you to some great resources in each of those lanes that would help you get started in um, in fighting human trafficking. So it's faith-based. It's for churches, advocates, missionaries. You feel called to fight trafficking. That's the place you want to get started. So. Shameless plug for Find Your Lane Bundle because it's really great. No, that's great because I didn't know that part. It just came out like today. I just before we jumped on, I got an email that it was ready. So I'm like, yeah, awesome. That's exciting. Yeah, really cool. Um, Grandkids, man, you know, I would say recently I was in New York um, heading to an event. I was in an Uber and I was at a stoplight and I saw this grand opening of a shop on the corner. It was all these bright colors, streamers coming out and loud music and a lot of people. And of course, I you turn to look like, oh, what's going on there? And it was the grand opening of an adult toy store. Ugh. And it hit me that I was like, wow, this is really just out in the open, completely normalizing real hypersexuality. But the thing that really got me was as I was watching this store, this couple walked by with a five-year-old little boy and they were holding each of his hand and like mom and dad swing their kids. Yes, yes. And the little boy turned to look right in the window at all the toys right easily on display. And I thought, what is happening to our five-year-old little boys and girls that are growing up in a culture that is so desensitized, like just casual sex? It's no wonder we're having rates of um, sex addicts and and porn addiction for for men and women. I'm not I'm not saying oh, about men men at all. Men and women women are heightened rates of sex addiction, yeah. affairs and and pornography more than ever before. What are we doing? What are we doing to desensitize a culture about casual commercial sex? You know, it's of any everywhere. form. I thought you know that's our mission as an anti trafficking organization is to is to change the mindset of a culture at, as it pertains to sex for sale in America and there's still hope. We can still do this. It's not just, well, we live in the end times, case sera, sera, Bible said it would get that way. Like, yeah, that's true. But it also said to be the bridesmaid ready with the oil for when he mm. returns, right? And, yes, amen. and to be the one caught out in the field working when he returns. And so 
when we look at even like an anti-smoking campaign, it, the anti-smoking groups did a phenomenal job at shifting the way a nation saw a medical, you know, a health, a community health need. Absolutely. And we can do that too. We can do the same. Right now, there are seven states in our nation trying to pass the legalization of prostitution in our country. Oh gosh. Seven states that have up for ballot this year. We have been helping advise presidential candidates. We have a lot of presidential candidates on the Democratic Party who are pushing for a pro-legalization of prostitution if they take um, the seat. We are living in a time where we have to rise up. Our communities cannot exist where there's brothels next door and illicit massage parlors next door to your home. It's going to become very dangerous because this isn't just an isolated crime where vulnerable people are being trafficked, although it is. But it's also going to bring in gangs and drugs and robbery and theft and organized crime. And this is a community health crisis. And we want people to get involved and on board with sounding the alarm for the next generation, for our grandkids, for, you know, my little girl's five. It, it hits me. What is this? What's social media going to be like for her? Oh my is sexting going right? to be something that is expected of her at 18 years old? Like, what are we doing, you guys? We've got to fix this. And Well, and Rebecca, I mean, the teenagers that what I have been told is that it really is just part of dating culture now. This whole Yep. and 18, more like 15. Totally. Oh, I have friends that are single. They're 35, 36, 37, 38, and it's so hard. They're like, "Rebecca, you have no clue." Like yeah. people ask for nude pics the moment you meet them. It's oh. so bizarre. So even older, I mean, from 15 to to 40, this is somehow becoming normal. And we can make a change. We can make a difference. We can hold back the gates of Hades. And, and so I'd love for people to join in this fight of changing culture. Because if the anti-smoking group can do it, we can too. And we can begin making a real difference in states across the country on laws and um, awareness that helps people to just start being a little bit more aware my 20 year old recently, she deleted her um, Instagram account. And I was so mad because I couldn't tag her. And I was like, what are you doing? Right. What are you t-? You're like, I'm following what you're telling me to do, mom. <laughs> she said, mom, I need to be more present with my friends. Mm. And I was like, wow, you're so wise yes. for your young years. But I think there's a generation raising up that are starting to see some actual long term effects. And I think that the more we engage um, that generation, the more I think we can really see transformation. I agree. I totally agree with that because it is, you're starting to see so many things come out now of what are the negative effects? Why have all of these suicide rates increased? Why have all of these things changed? And so much of it, you know, studies are showing that it goes back to the way social media is. And so I'm hopeful and I'm just so grateful. Yeah. People care about people. That's something I love about yes. this, about how our culture is changing. We, we deeply care about people. We want everyone to be safe. We want everyone to feel loved. We want everyone to know they belong. Mm-hmm. And if the church isn't making people feel that way, the world is. That's right. And so this is a heart issue of feeling like you belong in a community and you're loved and you're valued and you're worthy. And no matter what your past looks like, it's not an excuse for someone to take advantage of you or exploit yeah. you. And I think that's a message that the next generation really resonates with. 
And I think the the church needs to step up and really start engaging people because the church can tend to judge sin, right? Certain level, certain sins better than other sin and da, 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 da. And my husband can, he, him and I debate about this all the time. And I'm like, you think that God cares more about that than that pastor that has a porn addiction? Boy, please. I know. <laughs> like, sin is sin. Outward that's right. Sin or, or hidden sin. Okay. You're, so that's the truth. That is the truth. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for being here today. I am so grateful to just have been able to sit down and hear your story and share it a little bit with my listeners. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun. And thanks for asking all the tough questions. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Resources, links, and quotes from today's conversation can be found at graceenoughpodcast.com under the show notes tab. If you are enjoying the show, I would like to ask you a few favors. Number one, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. You can head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. Clicking that subscribe button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the podcast. Number two, if you enjoy the show, would you take a moment to leave a review on iTunes? Those reviews help me to know how the show is impacting you. And number three, the best way to grow is for people like you to share it with your friends. Will you share your favorite Grace Enough podcast episode via text, email, or social media? Again, I'm so grateful for each one of you who listen week in and week out. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.